verses 1 through 17 in the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 17. And we're looking this morning at three pilgrimage feasts, the three annual festivals uh, within Israel. Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 17. Let's, let's give our close attention to the reading and hearing of God's word. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God, you shall, not, you shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days, When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. Where are you 
headed? Where are you going? If you could go anywhere, where would you like to go? What is your dream destination? As uh, cliche as it may sound, we are all on a journey. And the Christian life, the Bible teaches us to think about the Christian life this way. The, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. To, to be a Christian is to be a pilgrim on the way. And none of us have arrived yet. We're not home yet. God's people have always been pilgrims on the way. And I think one of the reasons that Deuteronomy is so profoundly helpful for thinking about the Christian life is that we find ourselves in a very similar situation as Israel when Moses preached these sermons. Remember, that's what Deuteronomy is, a series of sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab. Moses delivers this message to people who have who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of darkness and who now stand on the brink of all of God's promised blessings, but they're not there yet. They haven't entered in. They're they're still pilgrims with Egypt and the wilderness behind them and the promised land before them. And so they find themselves in this middle position, this already not yet experience. But here's something to think about. And this is something that really got my attention as I reflected upon these annual festivals. Even after the people settled within the promised land, the Israelites were still commanded to make a number of annual pilgrimages to the place where God would cause his name to dwell. Isn't that, isn't that something? Even within the promised land, year after year after year, and after they were settled within the land, they were called to go and to make pilgrimage. And so even after they settled within the land, they've not yet fully arrived at their final destination. They were still expected to live like pilgrims, like sojourners within the land as Abraham did before them. And so three times a year, they were required to make this journey to the central sanctuary. And it needs emphasizing that it it was a journey. Once Jerusalem was revealed to be the place where God would cause his name to dwell, you know that Jerusalem was on a hilltop. And so to visit the temple was an upward climb from all areas surrounding it. That's why they sang Psalms of Ascent as they made their way up to the holy city. So let's consider the significance of these three annual festivals this morning in in three main parts along with this concluding statement. So first we'll think about the, the Feast of the Passover and Unleavened Bread, which are joined here in verses 1 through 8. Second, the Feast of Weeks, verses 9 through 12. And then third, the Feast of Booths and the summary statement in verses 13 through 17. Let's begin with the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. I wonder if you've noticed this, that the book of Deuteronomy has a lot to say about space. 
As we've already seen, the entire thrust of Moses' preaching is intended to direct the people uh, and their attention to life within the promised land. And even more specifically than that, to the yet-to-be-disclosed dwelling place of God, where God would cause his name to dwell, the sanctuary for God's name. This not-yet-identified location is the goal. It is the, the final destination towards which this whole book moves. But Deuteronomy, it not only has a lot to say about space, it also has a lot to say about time. As it turns out, God cares about both. And, and what we'll see is that he wants to dwell with his people in time and space. It is not insignificant that more attention is devoted to the fourth commandment, which is all about how God orders our time. More attention is devoted to that commandment than any other commandment. Think about or most of the other commandments. Most of the other commandments are a single verse in our Bibles, just a few words in Hebrew, but four verses are devoted to the fourth commandment, which orders and controls time by teaching God's people to work six days and then keep the seventh day holy, to know God, to remember God as their creator and redeemer. And here's one of the things that we need to understand about these annual festivals. The three annual pilgrimage festivals are an extension of the Sabbath principle to the entire year. The, the annual festivals, these annual feasts, extend the Sabbath principle to the entire annual calendar, right? To all time, really. This is clear from all of the sevenfold patterns appearing in this chapter. Just if you glance down very quickly, verse 3, seven days. Verse 4, seven days. Verse 8, on the seventh day. Verse 13, seven days. Verse 15, seven days. In verse 9, a series of seven weeks or a Sabbath of Sabbaths is mentioned not once but twice. So you see these, these festivals apply the rhythm of the Sabbath to the entire year. And so the point I, I want us to, to take in at this point is that God's God, God's desire to, to dwell with his people in the place that he chooses and his lordship over time are applied to the entire year, to all of time. And notice, notice how our text begins with a time-specific command in verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Now, the month of Abib was the first month of the year, according to Exodus 12, verse 2. And this month was symbol-laden with both agricultural and redemptive significance. In other words, it was full of meaning, pointing to God as both the Lord of creation and the savior of his people. I think both of these perspectives are, are very important 
to the annual calendar given to Israel under Moses. Creation and salvation. They're closely connected. They're they're related to one another. In fact, the word abib means new grain. And it was closely linked to springtime within Israel. In other words, it it was a time of new life. And how fitting that is. See, Abib was a, a time of new life in the agricultural season. And so how fitting for that to be the time when God's people celebrated the Passover and the new life that God provided uh, to his people by bringing them out of slavery, bringing them out of darkness by the blood of the Lamb. You see, part of the good news, and this is one of the the big ideas that I want us to take away from today, part of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has fulfilled all of the annual festivals in his person and in his work. The gospels actually rely upon these three annual feasts, particularly the gospel of John, to explain to us the significance of the person and work of Jesus. He is our Passover lamb, as Paul says directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He pours out his spirit on the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. And he fulfills the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, inviting all who are thirsty to come to him to drink, in John chapter 7. See, in Christ's body, we find the previously undisclosed location of Yahweh's central sanctuary fully and finally revealed. He, he is the place where God has chosen to have his name dwell. He is the true temple. He is the center of reality. He is the center of everything. And therefore we keep the feast by coming to him by faith. There's just so much for us to learn about Christ by reflecting on these festivals, right? To to understand what it means for Christ to be our Passover lamb, we, we need to think about the original Passover meal and the context in which it was instituted, right? Participating in the Lord's Supper, which we're invited to do today, requires us to remember that just like the Israelites, we were in bondage. We were subject to slavery. We were subject to the cruel mastery of the world, the flesh, And the devil, before Jesus redeemed us by his blood as the perfect Passover lamb slain for our sin, before Jesus brought us out, before he delivered us out of darkness. I wonder if you notice that emphasis in the text of the nighttime setting of the institution of the Passover. The end of verse 1. I think these details are not just throwaway statements. They're significant. Moses says that the Lord brought you out of Egypt by night. Night and darkness, they are often deeply symbolic in Scripture. scripture. The the Israelites were, were slaves dwelling in darkness, but the Lord brought them out 
And I think there are various New Testament allusions to this. For instance, when Paul is uh, talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper, he, he, he says that on the same night on which he was betrayed, and likewise in John's Gospel, we're told that after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. Where did he go out to? John says, and it was night. Judas turned his back on the light and the life of men and went out into the utter darkness. You see, do you see how the Bible works? You see the consent of all of the parts? It's, it's all about Jesus and scripture is a hyperlinked text, as we've said. And the Holy Spirit is teaching us to see how Christ, our Passover lamb, has delivered us from an even deeper darkness than we know. And we're supposed to inhabit this story. We, we were living in darkness, but God brought us out. Even though we've served other gods, even though we've bowed down to the gods of Egypt and betrayed Jesus more than we know, God brought us out. He redeemed us. You see, this is our story too. This is the story of our lives. Think about how Paul explains it in Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's a Passover story, isn't it? It's a Passover story and it's our story. So let us keep the feast by coming by faith to Christ. Now as Paul applies the, this ethically and practically in 1 Corinthians 5, Listen to what he says. He says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Remember the, the teaching about the Passover meal, no leaven. Here's Paul relying upon this. And he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And here Paul combines the Passover meal with the, the uh, feast of unleavened bread in the same way that Moses combines these two feasts in Deuteronomy 16. Now, in other places, they're treated a, a little bit more distinctly, but I think Paul here is thinking in terms of Deuteronomy and surprisingly, he calls Gentile believers to keep this Jewish festival. Now, not in the way that it was practiced before the coming of Christ. He's not saying go and have a Passover meal and uh, make your annual pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. No, by way of analogy, through faith in Christ, the true and better temple, the true and better Passover lamb, he calls us to keep the feast by putting our faith in Christ and by putting away sin. See, keeping the feast means trusting in Jesus, right? Being redeemed by Jesus and its result is holy living. 
That's what, that's what Paul was saying here. You see where Paul goes with this, that keeping the feast results in holy living. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, this holy living actually takes the form of church discipline. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have gone there with the Passover meal. But this is where Paul goes. Keeping the feast takes the form of a community that refuses to live in peaceful coexistence with sexual immorality or the open practice of unrepentant sin. So what does it mean for us to keep the feast? First, faith in Christ. He is the true Passover lamb and the result of trusting him for redemption, the result of feeding on him by faith is that we are nourished, we are strengthened and empowered as pilgrims on the move, pilgrims on the way. And so we don't get bogged down, right? We, we move in haste to our destination. Israel had to eat the meal in haste as they left from Egypt. They couldn't dilly-dally along the way. They couldn't linger over lust. They couldn't set their minds on things behind them in Egypt. They had to move. And that's why they ate bread without yeast, because it takes time for the bread to rise. You see, Paul wants us to adopt the very same sense of urgency when it comes to sin in our life and in the life of the Christian community. And and I think what's so powerful about his teaching is that he gives us the imagination to do it. And we need that. We, We need to have our minds renewed by the word to inhabit this story as the story of our lives. And this brings us to the Feast of Weeks in verses 9 through 12. Take a look at those with me. Like the other annual festivals, the Feast of Weeks was both a celebration of of God's generosity in creation and his gracious work of salvation. It was both an agricultural event, according to verse 9, as well as a religious holiday in verse 12. Thus, to celebrate the festival was a way of simultaneously rejoicing in God's identity as creator and redeemer. Now, notice that the timing of the Feast of Weeks, it was based upon the time of the harvest. The Israelites were supposed to count seven weeks from the time that the sickle was put to the standing grain. This is why the Feast of Weeks is also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23, verse 16. It was the time when the first fruits of the harvest was supposed to be brought given to God. Now get this. I I hope this thrills your soul when, when we see how the Bible works. It is no accident that approximately seven weeks after Christ's death and resurrection, that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, which is another biblical name for the Feast of Weeks. Christ was, we could say, Christ was cut down for us 
like standing grain. The sickle was put to the Son of God so that we might reap the Spirit. The sickle was put to the Son of God. Jesus said in John chapter 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The sickle was put to the Son of God that we might reap the harvest of his righteousness and receive the first fruits of the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. You see, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were supposed to be offered to God. But astonishingly, according to Romans 8, verse 23, God gives the first fruits of his Spirit to man, to us, to you, and to me. He, he not only shares the first and finest of the harvest with the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, but with poor sinners like us who groan inwardly, eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons. You see, because the sickle was put to the sun, there is an abundant harvest of divine generosity that we receive. And because we are the recipients of divine generosity, we are called to be generous in return. Do you see how that works? It's no accident then that when Paul organized his collection on behalf of the poor in Jerusalem, he made it a point to get back to Jerusalem with this enormous gift from the Gentiles to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. When? At the time of Pentecost, during the Feast of Weeks. The Harvest Festival. Paul wanted to deliver Gentile gifts to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. In fact, in fact Acts chapter 20, verse 16 says, Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And when Paul sought to bring his, his great collection during the harvest feast of Pentecost, you see, he was, he was seeking to bring a harvest from the nations, something that the prophets in the Old Testament looked forward to and anticipated from, from all of these far-flung church plants. Yes, Paul devoted himself to church planning, these little places where you know, God's name dwelled and where the Spirit was poured out. And one of the end goals in view was so that gifts were offered up, which are acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. And you see that this is all, in the grand scheme of things, this is all the fruit of Jesus' dying and rising and pouring out his spirit upon the church. On the first day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we, we read that there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven when the spirit was poured out on all flesh. Right, The beginning of this worldwide harvest among the nations. And <clears throat> you can really... You can really think about the entire book of Acts in, in this way. You know, yes, from one perspective, it's the, the outworking of the Great Commission as the church goes forth from Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. But it can also really be understood in the light of the Feast of Weeks. 
in the light of Pentecost. Because Jesus died and rose again and poured out his spirit on all flesh. There is an abundant harvest among the nations where the people are now bringing their offerings before the Lord. And this brings us to the third and final feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was another harvest festival that was, I think, probably the most jubilant of all because it was particularly associated with wine. And notice the the emphasis to feast and to rejoice together with everyone in the community, including the most vulnerable members. Nobody was excluded within within Israel. Everybody was invited to join in on the feasting and the rejoicing. And you notice at the end of verse 15, where Moses concludes, you will be altogether joyful. If nothing else, as we think about this, we ought to recognize what a gracious and generous host the Lord is. And, And how much, if I can speak this way respectfully, how much the Lord loves to party with his people. You see this pattern throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I hope, it's, I hope it's beginning to dawn on us how much God desires to have his people before his face feasting on the bounty of his provision and grace to, to be full of joy. To be full of joy. It's a clear lesson from this fifth book of Moses. He loves to gather his people in his presence, and to have them feasting and rejoicing that they might be altogether joyful. And and don't forget that when Jesus came in the fullness of time, he came eating and drinking. Jesus knew how to throw a good party. What was his first miracle? Turning water into lots and lots and lots of wine at a wedding feast. That, John says, was his first sign revealing his messianic identity, revealing his glory, John says. Now, over time, one of the rituals that developed around this festival was a water-pouring ceremony. So on, on each, of the seventh, uh, each of the seven days of this feast, a priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and with a great uh, parade or with a great procession, take it, Uh, into the temple mount where the water was poured out and accompanied by the shaking of leafy green branches and trumpet uh, trumpet sounds and great shouts of rejoicing at the base of the altar. See, this was a time of, of celebration, a time of expectation, symbolically anticipating things to come, right? As the water was poured out and and ran down the temple mount. It it uh, symbolized the many places in scripture describing a river running out of the temple. Trace this all the way back to the Garden of Eden, by the way. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Psalm 46, verse 4. And now, it's against this backdrop that we can begin to appreciate the significance of Jesus's declaration in John chapter 7 when on the last day 
of the feast, right? The apex of Israel's liturgical calendar, day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood up and said these words. Before we read them, we need to recognize that Jesus's ministry in John's gospel is organized around these feasts that we are reflecting on this morning. John uses them to explain to us the person and the work of Jesus. And so on this day, Jesus stands up, John 7, 37. We read, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of of living water. See what it's saying? He will make you a dwelling place. He will make you into a temple of God and out of you will flow rivers of living water, deep and wide. John goes on to say, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so here at the climax, at the end of the last of the three annual feasts, Jesus explains its true significance in the light of his own person and work. So in the midst of the feast that celebrated wine and this uh, water pouring ceremony, he stands up on the stage that is set by redemptive history and says, anybody who thirsts, Come to me and drink. Just think about this. The stage that was set. And Jesus takes the opportunity to explain that the true drink that we need does not come from a pool or a spring. He explains instead that it comes from him. That true and living water comes from him. And he will give it to you. He will give it to you. Think about the woman at the well. And all that we are meant to learn there in John chapter 4. He steps forward and reveals himself. Not only as the fulfillment of the feast. But as the feast itself. And one of the things that makes this so astonishing. When Jesus said these words. Is that he is surrounded by people who were trying to kill him. That's incredible. John has mentioned The plot that the Jewish authorities already had to kill Jesus three times in John chapter 7 already. Verse 1, verses 19 and 20, and again in verse 25. And so Jesus Jesus knew what it would cost him. What it would cost him to offer us a drink. He knew that openly declaring himself to be the true source of living water would require that his blood be poured out like wine. He understood. He he knew that the life he was freely offering would would need to be drawn from Emmanuel's veins. But he cried out all the same, let him come to me, let him come to me and drink. You see, friends, Jesus fulfills not only the, the pilgrimage festivals, he is the feast himself. He is the Passover Lamb, And he, he stands up at the end of all of the festivals of Israel's liturgical calendar, the climax of the year, that great day, John says. 
And he invites any who are thirsty to come to him and to drink, to receive living waters and to never thirst again. And he speaks to people who are plotting to kill him. See, he is the place where God has chosen to cause his name to dwell. He is the central sanctuary. He is the true temple of God. He's the center of reality. He's the center of absolutely everything. He's the place where heaven and earth meet. So we circle back to the beginning. Where are you going? Where is your life taking you? What is your dream destination? Where do you want to go? The big message of the book of Deuteronomy, I'll remind you once again, this won't be the last time, Lord willing, but the central message of the book of Deuteronomy is that he is your life. So let's keep the festival. Let's keep the festival by coming to Christ by faith and being altogether joyful. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray now that you would, you would lift our hearts to Zion, <clears throat> to desire nothing more than to seek your beauty within the temple in the crucified uh, and risen body of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning for us. We ask that you would change our hearts and our desires so that our days, our weeks, our years, our very lives are ordered around him. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.